You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by James Gordon Meek, who is an Emmy and and Society Professional Journalist Award-winning national security investigative reporter for ABC News. Previously, from 2011-2013, he was the top counterterrorism advisor to the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security and was the chief advisor to the current committee chairman, Representative Michael T. McCall, following the Boston Marathon bombings. At ABC News, he has investigated threats to the United States and attacks by ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and other terrorist groups, American hostage cases, Russian active measures, cybersecurity, the Afghan war, and human rights abuses by U.S.-backed Iraqi special forces, earning one Emmy and two SPJ awards for reporting, and three additional Emmy nominations for leading ABC News investigative projects. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. It's really awesome to be here. So I want to ask the question of someone who has been a very successful journalist now for several decades, uh, who interest in special operations and intelligence may have at one point made you think to lead yourself into this community, but instead you went to reporting on this community. So what led you in that? And I think talking about where you grew up might also enlighten the listeners to why this was an interesting choice for someone who maybe was kind of in your heart pushed toward doing this work as part of the community versus reporting on this work. You know, that's a great question. There's not an easy answer, but to answer your first question, I grew up next door to the CIA, basically. I went to Langley High School, which is, you know, walking distance to the other Langley. And um, so there were always people around. I, you know, I sort of tell the story of, like, growing up, there were a lot of people from, you know, various administrations, particularly the Reagan administration, whose children were my friends and classmates, and people from World Bank and IMF. There was, you know... Uh, the kids would sit around in elementary school. I don't know if they did this at your elementary school and compare like where their parents worked. <laughs> I think it was like a very McLean, Virginia kind of thing. And uh, there was, the, well, my 
mom is at the National Security Council. My father is a Supreme Court justice. This is all true. And then there would be the one kid who'd say, I'm not allowed to know where my parents work. And that, <laughs> that would trump everybody else because their parent was Bond 007, yeah. licensed to kill. And every, it silenced everybody, you know. Um, my parents were in politics. That's how they met. My dad was then you know, a presidential speechwriter and a lobbyist. But I grew up in that community. And uh, I had no idea that I'd end up covering intelligence or, you know, working in the larger sort of intelligence community for a while. Uh, I, I made the worst joke in the world that nobody ever laughs at, that I should have developed more sources when I was growing up there. <laughs> but, um, well, now someone's laughed at it, so we're... we're... Okay, finally. <laughs> uh, although, you know, Rufus Phillips, who wrote a great book about uh, Vietnam and uh, so forth and intelligence work there, uh, was a neighbor and his daughter was one of my classmates and many other people like that. And Lou Conin lived down the street from us and my, when I was... a a toddler my parents were taking me for a walk and he came out of the woods holding a 45 automatic mumbling something about uh, chasing a rabid dog <laughs> my father realized this was the famous cia operative lucian conin so that was sort of the community i grew up in um but i ended up going to art school and i did not join the military which was kind of the family business my father was a combat veteran my grandfather was a combat bomb group commander in world war ii and many other members of my family but my interest was really in kind of always all political junkie. So I ended up being a political reporter, but then started to gravitate as the times changes towards crime and justice and terrorism and uh, national security, espionage, things like that, uh, which was really, you know, I, I could draw on personal experience, but probably the things that really propelled me the most towards, and I don't think I was aware of it at the time, towards being a terrorism writer uh, were three events that happened in pretty close order. One was I had trekked from Panama to Colombia with some guys and some missionaries, American missionaries who had helped our team, safely cross Kuna Indian territory into Colombia. A week later, they were kidnapped by Colombia's narco-terrorist group, FARC, and held hostage for several years before they were executed. I wrote about their stories a number of times, and they're, they're interviewed their widows. Uh, that happened in 1993, and then the same week, Miramal Kazi, uh, opened fire on employees turning left into the CIA on Route 123 near my home in McLean. Right, which would have been a, like two blocks from your school. Pretty damn no, close, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was just, I mean, like a half mile from, from my uh, both my nursery school and my high school and my home. And uh, my mom, had we not been going to a funeral of my best friend in Richmond that day, would have been driving down 123 to work. Um and I became friends with the FBI agent, Brad Garrett, who hunted Kazi for four years, caught him, brought him to justice. Uh, Brad is now an ABC News contributor, so we're, we've been <laughs> friends for a long time. Um, and those two things happened the same week, and then a year and a half later, my cousin, Claudette Meek, was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so I think as much as I was interested in politics, terrorism, both domestic and international, began to be something that I had a growing passion for. And you've, you've, over your career, have been in the same room or even done interviews with some of the most well-known terrorists in the world. I mean, you... you and spies. And, well, and spies. We'll get to the spy <laughs> side, yeah. But the terrorist side, I mean, you, you were there for the arraignment and later the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. You, you know, at, were at Guantanamo Bay when certain, you know, some of these men were brought there. Um, you covered the trial of the, you know, the so-called... You know, extra hijacker, the twentieth hijacker, Zakaris Masawi. 
Um, Our headline was Moose is Cooked <laughs> at the Daily News. Oh, that's right. The Daily News, every day it's worth looking at what their headlines yeah. are because they're extraordinary. So what what from this time period stands out at you to you as the most interesting? Was it an interview with a particular terrorist that you got a chance to have a conversation with? Was it sitting in a courtroom with people like KSM who the mastermind of 9-11 and seeing his completely unflappable demeanor of being a man who was responsible for the murder of 3,000 people. Because of where I was sitting in the courtroom at Guantanamo in 2008 when he was brought in, the first time anybody besides the CIA or the military had laid eyes on the guy since his capture in 03, um, you know, because of where they sat me, I actually had a direct line of sight to KSM and, and spent a fair amount of time for several days looking him in the eyes. And I have to say it was the most chilling experience of my entire life. I'll never forget it. Because you, anybody who had any doubt that he was as he, the self-proclaimed military commander of Al-Qaeda would not have had any doubt as you watched him essentially take control of the other four 9-11 defendants like Ramsey Ben Al-Shiv and others uh, who were sitting there. And, but looking him in the eyes, I mean, you saw a man who had absolutely no remorse about the slaughter of Danny Pearl uh, and 3,000 Americans on 9-11. Um, so that was certainly memorable. I think standing outside and near the Pentagon on 9-11, you know, that was an event. Um, I was married four days later in Washington. So that was an event that affected me. I didn't know anybody was killed in 9-11, but ultimately I became very close to quite a few people who lost their loved ones in that attack. And there I was interviewing. I was taking pictures through a 300 millimeter lens from an apartment building of flames spitting out the windows. This was within less than an hour after the plane sliced through the Pentagon. I had just moved from New York. I had been working in lower Manhattan, so it was like both my neighborhoods were hit on the same day. Right. Uh, interviewing people who had basically been evacuated in uniform, streaming through Arlington National Cemetery, streaming, streaming walking through the Gardens of Stone, and just sort of completely shell-shocked at what had just happened and trying to come to grips with it. And we were all waiting for the next plane to hit the White House or the Capitol. Right. Um, those were certainly big, big, memorable moments. And that one was life-altering. It changed the course of my reporting, you know, away from national politics and campaigns and things like that. I'd already been doing terrorism somewhat for three years, but it really changed the course of my life in many ways, including the friendships that I have. So many people I'm close to I met as a result of covering, you know, the wars and investigating cases in Iraq, fratricide of a soldier I knew who was killed by his own lieutenant, people I was embedded with downrange. I'm still friends with quite a lot of people. Uh, my trips in Afghanistan, embedded with special forces. And it, it also brought kind of the, it made me realize that over time, I sort of began to specialize in, and I never set out to do this, believe me, but like grief and loss, mm associated with our wars and counterterrorism and you know becoming close to the families of American hostages and fallen soldiers and so forth and looking for more human stories in my investigative work and I began to move away steadily from the political reporting and do more and more of that national security and counterterrorism you know related stuff but talk, looking for those human stories we talk about the human stories and I think that's interesting did you ever sit down you talked about KSM being probably exactly what you expected KSM to be, like this, you know, soulless, terrorist, evil doer, to use George Bush's term, yeah. uh, that 
was clearly the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks. Was there a time when you sat down with somebody, uh, an accused terrorist or someone that you knew was working for an organization that had kind of competing interests with the United States? Were you expected to have some kind of soulless monster and were surprised to actually have a conversation with a human? No, I think they're mostly soulless <laughs> monsters, Vince, to be honest. Um, I certainly, you know, I used to do... I used to have a lot of dealings with Pakistani officials, and over time, I began to be more and more troubled with knowing, being aware of, of uh, their military and, and uh, intelligence apparatus' support of the Taliban, um, in particular. And um, you know, when you spend time downrange with people who are soldiers and operators, and so many of them are wearing black memory bracelets for their friends who've been killed by organizations such as the Haqqani Network, which is you know, very closely aligned, or has been certainly, with Pakistan's inter services intelligence. That maybe is sort of the moment when you have to have kind of a personal reckoning of the person you're talking to is with an organization or a government that supports people who kill, kill American troops. And I've asked other, I've asked officials, by the way, in my journalism career at times, you know, sometimes a director of national intelligence, how do you sit down at a table? The very question you're asking, like, how do you sit across a table from somebody who you know in the Pakistani government is somehow tacitly supporting or covertly supporting these groups that are killing American troops? How do you stomach that? <laughs> That's not a question they like to answer. Yeah, right. But, I mean, you know, I haven't interviewed a lot of terrorists. They're not easy to get interviews right. with. Um, but I remember during the Millennium Plot and early 2000 interviewing uh, or trying to interview Hisham Diab who was running a cell in Garden Grove, California which the FBI wasn't particularly interested in so they tasked uh, to some degree even unbeknownst to me people I'd partner with Stephen Emerson's investigative project to take a look at these people well you know they recruited Adam Gadon who had already fled the country ended up being Al-Qaeda's American spokesman and you know two dozen videos I think um, and an advisor to Bin Laden uh, they had a bank account tied to Abu Zubaydah, the first guy who was caught and waterboarded by CIA after 9-11. So uh, that was weird, particularly when a reporter from Newsweek came back to Washington after interviewing them following my stories of this basically Al-Qaeda financial support cell in California, which was tied to the Millennium Plots against American hotels in Amman, Jordan during the Millennium. Mm -hmm. And uh, this reporter came back and said that they had they'd sat down with some of these folks from this sham charity that Hisham Diab, this Egyptian, ran. And he was a friend of the Blind Sheikh. Remember him? Mm -hmm. Convicted of trying to blow up New York in 93. Yeah. And uh, I think he died, what was it, last year? Anyway, uh, Diab uh, had been interviewed by this news reporter, and she came back and she said, well, James, I've talked to Hisham Diab and the other people that you wrote about. They really don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and she was laughing. But that was a little chilling to be told. Yeah, these Al-Qaeda people really have a grudge because of your work. I mean, how do you how do you stay objective? I mean, that kind of, you know, journalism 101 is is kind of a objective, unbiased look at the news. Do I need to? Well, that's a question. Do you think you need to? I mean, is that is that something that that mattered all that much to you? Did anybody ever ask Ernie Pyle that question? For, I mean, for those of you out there who are too young <laughs> to know who Ernie Pyle is, he was an extraordinarily gifted reporter during World War II who covered the Pacific island hopping campaign and actually was killed right. covering the Pacific and island hopping And North Africa campaign. and Atlanta. the Blitz. Yeah. 
And Ernie Pyle wrote G.I. Joe stories. Yeah. And Ernie Pyle was unabashedly an American who wrote stories about great American heroes downrange. And when I was embedded, um, I mean, if somebody had committed a war crime, yeah, you can bet I would have reported it. Absolutely. But, you know, I was, I'm an American. Yeah. And I'm proud to be an American, warts and all. And uh, I've written, very proudly written, stories about Joe downrange. And uh, I can't be objective about people who slaughter women and children. Uh, and Al-Qaeda chooses, and ISIS, its victims to mostly be, or often be, civilians rather than military Targets. Yeah, those are soft targets. They don't want to right. take on the military head and head. Yeah. And beheading journalists and aid workers on yeah. video and so forth. So I can't really be very uh, objective, and I don't. I don't think I have to be. Right. So you, you were embedded. about that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, you, <laughs> I'm objective about everything else, yes. but I'm not objective <laughs> about people chopping off the heads of, of journalists. But anyway. We'll have more of James in just one moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about the new podcast, Unexplained Mysteries. If you're a fan of SpyCast, which you obviously are, you probably enjoy diving into the untold stories of mystery in the unknowable world. If so, let me tell you about a new podcast out now called Unexplained Mysteries. Every week, the hosts explore the greatest mysteries of the past and present, from the building of Stonehenge to the subject of the Mona Lisa. There may not be a simple answer or explanation, but doesn't mean that there's no explanation at all. And these hosts dig deep to investigate Earth's greatest mysteries. Each episode uses captivated storytelling to take you on a journey through Earth's greatest mysteries. With a team of researchers, the hosts use in-depth research and analysis as they look for answers. And you can check out episodes on the Majestic 12, the Mona Lisa, and Stonehenge now. And with a new episode coming out every Thursday, you can expect a new mystery every week. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Unexplained Mysteries. Again, that's U-N-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-E-D. M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-E-S or visit parcast.com slash unexplained to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unexplained to listen now. You, you were embedded twice uh, with U.S. Special Operations Forces and other elite units in Afghanistan in both 2005 and 2010. So me, in 2005, when you, when you first arrived, how hard was it to be accepted as part of the... These aren't, this is not the, you know... You're not the first infantry division with a bunch of Joes who are E2s right. and right out of basic. These, this is the Army Green Berets. These are these are elite forces, um, and you know they don't necessarily accept other soldiers, let alone a journalist who doesn't have the background uh, of special operations. So how 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 much did you have to work to get? Because again, you've talked about it now that you're friends with a lot of these guys, lots of them. Now. Now, right. So how did, how hard did you have to work to get accepted to this community? It was, uh, I mean, I'm very charming. Uh, but it was, uh, it was tough, honestly, because I had not gone to Tampa to Special Operations Command headquarters and done a lot of hand-holding. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Afghanistan, and it was, it was too quick a turnaround to travel for me to do any of that that people traditionally have done to try to win the confidence of SOCOM to get an, an, an approved embed. So I sort of had to work on the fly, but I'm pretty good with that. But it wasn't easy. I, I remember flying from uh, Bagram down to Host to Fort Operating Base Salerno in 2005 with a couple of Green Berets. And because of the way that I treated them, because I of my demonstrated knowledge of what they do, and the fact that I did not take pictures of their faces 
they they got it. Mm-hmm. And without asking them if I could do this, they went to public affairs officers at uh, Salerno and said, we like this guy. We'd like to bring him out on patrol with us. That was their idea. And I was that was exactly what I wanted. But the command in Bagram, the conventional command, the general shut that down real fast. And I can't get into their heads, but as near as I could ascer- you know, ascertain, there was a secret war happening along the Pakistani border on what was called you know, the Duran Line, as the British dubbed it, the border between the two countries. And they were not publicizing that secret war. There was some of the heaviest combat since Vietnam being waged along that border by mostly special operations units, um, all intel-driven, by and large by you know DIA and CIA. And they did not, and the, and the complicity on the Pakistan side I think was essentially the reason why they didn't want to acknowledge it. They didn't want reporters anywhere near it. So it was beyond just the special operations kind of secret squirrel, you know, stay away from journalists thing. I think actually they, they the soft guys, as we call them, special operations forces, soft, uh, were much more interested in having somebody like me who really understood what they did or mm-hmm. was trying to anyway, um, than the higher, you know, tier general officers who were running the war did. You know, they didn't really want me out there. So they would, uh, uh, you know, they put out a press release that a guy would have been killed in action, like a Green Beret. Remember, there was a guy named Vic Cervantes, and he was a sergeant, and he was killed while, quote, on patrol. They didn't reveal the fact that he was actually killed as part of a QRF, Quick Reaction Force, coming to the aid of fellow soldiers who had fallen under attack by a much superior force. And it resulted in a 10-hour battle involving B-52 airstrikes and gunships, Spectre gunships, helicopter gunships, drones, artillery. This was the biggest fight that some of the conventional soldiers in the 82nd Airborne, their unit had been in since Vietnam. And uh, they didn't want to publicize that because where did the bad guys go after they attacked our our soldiers? They, as uh, Senator Obama later referred to it, would skulk back across the Pakistani border into their safe haven in Pakistan. And they didn't want to, you know, amp things up. Kind of like recently when the Russians attacked our special operations in Syria, and the Pentagon would not say that they were Russians. We reported, I reported that they were from the Wagner Group and they were Russian mercenaries, blah, blah, blah. But it was a similar situation. They didn't want to amp up the conflict publicly with the Pakistanis. So all that stuff stayed secret. So they didn't want me out there. But I got out there anyway. Yeah, the, I didn't. The Russian I'm charming. Thing, the, the, I mentioned that. <laughs> thwacked the Russians. I don't know why they didn't want to publicize. I mean, I get the, the bigger, broader geopolitical reason why you don't do it. Let but, the Russians save face, I guess. I, but, I guess so. But in the same thing with the Pakistanis, yeah. and I don't think that strategy necessarily worked with the Pakistanis, because right. they, they still help those groups. And But it, it was... It was pretty cool to finally make my way out to a Green Beret camp in 2005. And uh, I remember the team sergeant uh, gave me a little quick briefing on the camp. And then he said, what kind of weapon would you like? Like an M4, a pistol, AK-47? And I was like, well, uh, I'm a journalist and I probably shouldn't carry a weapon. And he said, well, suit yourself. You wouldn't be the first journalist out here carrying a weapon. And I looked at him and I, I quoted uh, Sergeant Major Basil Plumley. And I said, well, uh, Sergeant, the time comes I need a weapon. There will be plenty lying on the ground. We'll let them look that up for themselves. But the book's better than the movie. Um, the, 
I can understand why you might want a weapon since you're not the shortest person. You might stand out That's a true. little I'm, bit on a I'm battle. Six foot seven. Everybody always says, can you walk lower? I remember Scotty Miller, who's now going to take over the war, said to me once, can you just walk a little lower, James? Well, walking next to you means that you're not the primary target. <laughs> well, that's what I would always yeah. just, like, don't you want me to draw fire? Yes. Today, if I were to go down range today and somebody offered me a weapon in that same situation, sorry, ABC, I would probably take one because they were facing like squad size elements, American elements, who were being attacked by 50, 60, 100 guys. Right. And they didn't give a damn if you were a journalist or not. Or, you know, wait, this is my notebook I'm holding up. No, please don't shoot me. You know, they didn't care. Right. Which it does have pretty close similarities to the situation you're ta- you, you may have referenced to is, is embedded reporters in Vietnam and other places where right. the Viet Cong, the NVA didn't care if you were writing for Stars and Stripes. You know, you were on the battlefield. ISIS, well, Al-Qaeda doesn't give a shit. Two of my journalistic heroes, Joe Galloway, formerly of UPI, yeah. and Tim Page, the great photographer in Vietnam, both picked up weapons and killed enemy soldiers when uh, the elements they were with were being overrun. Yep. And they are considered to be two of the greatest journalists living today. And, uh, you know, I think to defend yourself, that's not illegitimate. It's controversial, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. And I chose not to carry a weapon, but there was always an extra nearby. Well, I mean, that's the, the trick is that the reason CIA doesn't allow for, or does, does frowns upon, people using journalism as a, a cover identity is because journalists already have a target on their backs and people already think journalists are spies. And it puts you in a precarious position, particularly when you're dealing with organizations uh, that are not states, non-state actors like an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS, where many of your colleagues, whether you knew them or not, have been murdered in the last 15 sure. years. and targeted because they were journalists. Right. In, the, in the situation of patrolling on the Afghan-Pakistan border, it really was more a case that you know nobody was going to be taking the time to figure out whether you know who was an American soldier and who was an American reporter. It was it was a dangerous environment without any question, and uh, and I sort of got lucky that I sort of spent some time at this special forces camp in Paktika province at that time, in between some pretty just extraordinary attacks. It was the heaviest fighting, and it was again the American public was kept completely in the dark. So I came back and wrote stories about that, and my editors were like, "Did this really happen? Like, <laughs> like why? Because you haven't read about it in the New York Times?" Right. You know? But yeah, it really happened. Well, I'm interested because you spent two times embedded, and they're five years apart, 2005, 2010. Was there an objective view of progress or lack thereof in that five-year span? Was it dramatically different? in Afghanistan in 2010 than it was in 2005. I mean, there had been changes of command. There had been different philosophies and strategies implemented between those time periods. You obviously had a presidential shift during that time period. Uh, Did you see any kind of market difference on the ground in Afghanistan in those five years? Well, definitely. I mean, just arriving at Bagram Airfield, it's like the first time I went there in 05, you could have shot a howitzer down the flight line and not hit an aircraft. There There were no aircraft which was a huge problem at that time. You would sometimes wait a week just to get a helicopter from point A to point B because there just weren't any aircraft. And, uh, but when 20, I went in 2010, it was like the flight line was full from you know, every kind of aircraft imaginable. But then, you know, certainly when you run around other parts of the country, Afghanistan, I wouldn't say it felt occupied, although if you're an Afghan, it might have. 
but you certainly saw more Americans more commonly in remote places than you had ever at any point. You know, when I first went, there was like 25,000 troops in the country, 30,000 maybe. When I went back, there was like 110,000 troops. It was during Obama's surge. Um, But one of the things I was really interested in uh, was something I had written about and a guy in particular I had written about uh, and my writing about him helped sort of bring attention to his proposal, uh, Major Jim Gant, a Green Beret who had written this paper called One Tribe at a Time, and he proposed pretty actually really not a new concept, but that special forces go native with the tribes to win their loyalty away from the Taliban, that they literally go live with tribes in the remote areas, Pashtun tribes in Afghanistan. And Ultimately, in a limited way that his strategy was adopted and put into place in, in many places, it, it worked uh, for the limited, unfortunately limited amount of time that it was applied. So I went to Afghanistan in 2010. I actually tried to get embeds with Jim Gant, my new friend who I'd written about. Um, but he was out there, you know, trying to, as he put it, win the war. And, uh, and then years later at ABC, I did a story that was Emmy nominated about his uh, adventure in Afghanistan two years in combat. I'm actually wearing a bracelet right now that's just a simple rubber bracelet with the colors of the Afghan flag which Jim wore uh, in combat for two years and then after I did this story in 2013 about his uh, rise and fall as Lawrence of Afghanistan they called him at the beginning and then they were calling him Colonel Kurtz by the end um, he wore this bracelet through those two years of combat that he was in without a day off and uh, after I did that story, he gave me the bracelet as a personal memento and appreciation for my, you know, telling his story, I think, fairly. But, uh, you know, I wanted to see, are they, is, were they putting that strategy in, in place? Was it working? And, you know, what I found ultimately, in brief, is that the things that had worked in the beginning where Green Berets relied on tribes and, and native, the locals, you know, to, and, and sort of adopted their customs and, and made them force multipliers, uh, we abandoned a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we stopped putting special operators into the villages, living with the people, earning their loyalty by fighting alongside them. Um, you know, everybody was shaving their beards off. The Pashtun prefer to deal with men who have beards as a cultural thing. And, you know, it seemed to be more about body counts and less about actual counterinsurgency and defeating the Taliban, at least to a degree that we could all come, our guys could come home. So the surge was interesting, but it ultimately, I think it failed completely. We're still fighting 17 right. years later. Well, we're, we're both now too old to be running around Southwest Asia in the mountains, but are, are you... Speak for yourself. Oh, well, that was my next question, right? You you went five years apart, but it's been a good eight years now yeah. since you've gone back. It sucks. It, I hate that. Is, is there a desire to go... I mean... We have a change of command in Afghanistan. You know, there may be a new strategy moving forward. Although, in the 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 testimony, he never really came out and said there's going to be a new strategy. But everyone kind of puts their own mark on you know what the the, the theater of operations is going to look like. Is it somewhere you want to go back? I mean, I would love to go back to Afghanistan. My great ABC News colleague Ian Panel just uh, uh, embedded with special forces in Afghanistan and. He's, you know, he lived there for a couple of years. Um, I wish I could have been his producer, but he has very capable producers who are very experienced there much more than I. You know, uh, I did not spend as, you know, relatively speaking, I didn't spend as much time as a lot of people I know in Afghanistan. 
You know, I would go for a month. I, now I would file 30 stories in 30 days, typically. Um, I made good use of my time, but, um, but I've been there more than most. So I'm glad to have done that. I would do it again. But, you know, you get older, and now I have two kids, and it's different considerations right. go into that. Um, but if given the opportunity, you know, and there have been some uh, close calls, shall we say, in my reporting ABC, close calls in the sense of, you know, uh, for one project we were going to go to Baghdad, and then we decided that we might not survive the trip from the airport into the city because of the story we were working on was not <laughs> favorable to the government, right. uh, the Iraqi government. Um, but yeah, that would be great to be able to do that again. You know, that's I, that was I've never been happier than sitting in the back of an armored vehicle with American volunteers trying to keep us all safe. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So I, I think one thing that's really interesting about these wars, um, particularly the one in, in Afghanistan, was how much conventional forces and special operations forces were working hand in hand with in intelligence operations. And in some cases, you know, the traditional kind of vector is intel leads to better war fighting, right? Yeah. Intelligence fuels the war fighting. But that's that's really kind of a misunderstanding and at least an understatement of how that line is not straight, how it's much more of a circular where operations can fuel intelligence collection, intelligence collection can fuel operations, and kind of more circular than a straight line from intel to war fighting. Um, you, you've t I've heard you tell this story before, and I'd love for you to tell it to, to, to the listeners about where you saw this on the ground firsthand. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of you know a funny story because this was not uh, a soft story. This is uh, when I was embedded with the 10th Mountain Division in Kandahar in 2010. Uh, the first night I was in this camp, which was a joint Canadian-U.S. camp, there was this big just sort of boom, and it literally, the concussion sort of shook the tent flaps, and everybody caught everybody's attention, and uh, we went outside. What had happened is they had this sort of new policy that had been written about. It was a little controversial, maybe a lot controversial, uh, of if they saw people at night through thermal imaging doing, you know, outside their villages or doing something, particularly on a roadway, that looks suspicious, then they would get, I'm sure a lawyer would be involved in this, but they get permission to, uh, you know, zap people with a drone. Because, you know, why are you digging a hole in a road, <laughs> you know, after dark? Right. So uh, that's what it was, is there have been three guys who were digging a hole, presumably planting an improvised explosive device in a road well outside the village that was in that area. And a drone overhead uh, had 
launched a couple of missiles and uh, blown them up. So they sent a patrol out at night to go uh, try to what they call hide them, which is using a device that scans the retinas and fingerprints people electronically. And that all goes into a database. You know, they, they would do that sort of routinely on patrols of villagers and build a database of people who were, you know, in some cases, you know, part of bomb-making networks and insurgent elements and things like that. So they'd gotten out there, and uh, wild dogs in the desert had gotten to the bodies of the three guys who were digging the hole in the road, so they couldn't do the hide scans of their retinas and fingerprints. So a couple of days later, the colonel, the battalion commander, decided to send a patrol out, and I went out on a patrol with a lieutenant and a squad size element, you know, like 10 guys, to go into this village and try to ascertain the identities of who the guys were building, uh, who were digging the hole in the road. And um, and this guy, this colonel, was really f amusing. He looked at the lieutenant who was going to lead the patrol that I had joined, which was a very, you know, dangerous foot patrol into what was clearly a Taliban-controlled village. And he said, um, he said, Lieutenant, I want you to meet the Malik of that village and you tell him if his people go out and dig holes in roads at night, they're going to be eaten by dogs. <laughs> <laughs> now, in delivery, <laughs> the lieutenant found a perhaps more politic way of saying that to the village Malik when we got there. <laughs> the colonel was quite a, quite a character. But the whole, and, and they did not ascertain the identities of the guys. I'm surprised it hasn't become a euphemism for the agency, the CIA that still denies using armed drones in combat. And they, that's still the official policy. They should just start saying, um, no, Anwar Alaki was eaten by drone, uh, eaten by dogs. He wasn't, <laughs> right. he wasn't killed by an armed drone. Um, let me ask you this, because there, there's a really interesting transition that takes place in your life in 2011 when you go from being on the ground with the special operations guys reporting on national security, reporting on intelligence special forces, to kind of being the man, kind of joining the government, working for the Committee on Homeland Security, being inside the building, kind of instead of being outside pissing in, you're, you're inside pissing out, kind of Lyndon Johnson's old phrase. You're now one of the people that you had been reporting on for so many years. How much of a culture shock was it to see the world from the other side? Well, for me, it was like, you know, I was approached by the incoming chairman of the committee and, and asked to be part of a team of counterterrorism advisors, like three or four people who were outsiders, not hill rats, as he said, and, you know, had direct experience. I just gotten back from Afghanistan with special forces and infantry and, you know, had, you know, some of the couple of people they brought in were had a law enforcement background. These are people who could really give the perspective of operators on the ground and cops on the street in counterterrorism policy and investigations that the committee might do. And uh, I, I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. So I called my father up and I said, hey, uh, my dad had been a speechwriter for President Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and LBJ. And I said, you know, I've been offered this job. And he said, well, what'd you say? Well, I said I wanted to think about it. I wanted to talk to you whether this is a good idea for me to stop being a reporter and work for the Homeland Security Committee. And he said, well, you didn't seek the job, did you? And I said, no, no, no. It was, they approached me, offered me the job, and he said, well, uh, in our family, James, when our country calls us and asks us to serve, we don't say, I'll think about it. We say, what day would you like us to show up? <laughs> <laughs> I said, 
my father often reminded me of things like that. So I uh, called back and accepted way. the job. Yeah, <laughs> and and it was great because you know I actually wanted to do something. I'd gone back to Afghanistan. I so many of my friends were back there, and I don't think any of us thought we'd be back there five years after we first met or had spent time there together. And it was like this is still going on, you know. And I felt like I wanted to do more to contribute. I wanted to look back and not just say, well, to my kids, you know, well, I wrote about it. I wanted to be able to say I'd done something more direct to try to help our country and protect our country and somehow use my knowledge of all the years I'd done reporting on al-Qaeda and terrorism. And I didn't really know how to do that. And then, as I said, you know, there was an election. The Republicans were taking over the Congress and the new incoming chairman, who was a Republican, called me and asked me to be part of this team. And uh, my Democratic parents said, liberal Democrat parents said, you know, if you're going to do anything, do it for the majority, whoever it is. That's the only way you get anything done, and this is great, you know, and you should do it. So I did that for two and a half years. And, uh, and I was just, you know, beyond thrilled to be able to do something to serve my country. I was too old to carry a rifle, probably. Unless it would have been dropped by someone else. But, and it was uh, an interesting time. Bin Laden got right. schwacked during that time. Malaki got smoked, you know. Well, I mean, we had nothing to do with that. Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it wasn't the, the Homeland Security Committee that was doing all that. But, no, um, but we had oversight of right. NCTC and, you know, DHS. And, and that was, you know, to go to your question, a peek behind the curtain. Right. There were things I would read in intelligence boards. When I had a top secret class, for, you know, clearance. And I would go, you know, somebody mentioning New York, and I'd go, as a New York Daily News reporter, I would have killed to know about this. <laughs> and then I learned another essential truth of a lot of that, which is everything is pushed up as a CYA, including a lot of stuff that isn't credible in terms of intelligence reporting right. on threats. And that was not surprising to me, but it was, in a degree, very eye-opening to read so many classified reports on things where, you know, threat to New York City, you know, bridges being targeted or something. But then at the bottom, it would say, the source is untested and would have unlikely to be in the circle of al-Qaeda leadership planning such an attack. There's an extraordinary amount of noise that gets stamped top secret and That's sent right. up, the, up the ladder. Uh, there's a perception of Congress, rightly or not, and I think for some it is absolutely deserved. Um, but there are people there who certainly know what the hell they're doing. But there, there's a perception of Congress that people don't know anything about what's happening in the Middle East. They don't know anything about... I, I think there was a poll done maybe a year or two ago where members of Congress were uh, were polled and less than half knew the difference between Sunni and Shia and kind of understood like that that why that was a problem and why there were differences well, I there. I mean, we didn't have that problem, to yeah. be honest well, with you. Well, that's my question. Is it, Was this... Yeah. These committees in the past, whether it's the intelligence or the armed services or the ones that are supposed to be apolitical and staffed with experts, not just the congressional staff with the actual membership were supposed to be people that knew what the hell they were doing. Was that the case that you ran into in the Homeland Security Committee? I think, you know, sometimes the members were clueless. Certainly it was often a challenge to get more than one member to come to a classified briefing on a subject. But uh, I got to work with, uh, on my team, extraordinary people like Joe Herbert, who was a legendary New York City Police Department homicide investigator who, after 9-11, worked on the Joint Terrorism Task Force for 10 years. He was the first NYPD detective assigned to the National Counterterrorism Center in Washington, and then he became essentially like a fellow working on our counterterrorism team in the Homeland Security Committee, uh, 2011 through, I guess, 2013. And more recently, he has been the top NYPD guy running the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York. 
and an extraordinary man of probably the greatest humility of any successful heroic figure I've ever known in a way, uh, the epitome of the reluctant hero. And Lauren Winger, who was young, but got two master's degrees, including one from National Intelligence University, was a subject matter expert when there were none really on radicalization. I mean, she just was so insightful in uh, being able to identify that as something that we needed to focus on because no one was. Uh, she's now a top advisor of the Department of Homeland Security and is an extraordinary public servant. I mean, I've worked with some very knowledgeable people. I was blessed. And we got to talk to, you know, much as like you bring in sort of a who's who of people to do these podcasts, me being at the low rung of that. Uh, we got to talk to anybody who was a subject matter expert on anything. We would ask people to come in and they would move heaven and earth and come in and, and meet with the staff. So I was pretty lucky. I mean, to me, it was like just for somebody like me who is a sponge and likes to learn, it was like a master's degree or PhD in, in counterterrorism. But that's awesome at a staff level. And what, yeah. what, what brings it from being a <laughs> collegial <laughs> think tank Members to actually getting the policymakers to do something about it? Like, did you... Yeah. Did you feel that frustration that so many people working as staffers on, on, on the Hill feel of, yes, now we have a room full of the smartest people on earth, but we can't get a damn member of Congress to do anything about this? We had some great members who were just really quite brilliant. Um, we had a former U.S. attorney. We had people who were military veterans. Oddly enough, on the Republican side, we had a lot of people who had backgrounds in law enforcement and national security and military. On the Democratic side of the committee at that time, it was there really weren't any. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we certainly had some wingnuts who were like a hearing would turn almost into a joke when they would start asking a witness something because they were so off the reservation um, on, on our side. Exactly. On our side. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember I used to have to brief a couple of times I had to brief a member of Congress who was facing a challenge in, in a primary over a mosque being built in their district and people were terrified that this was like an al-Qaeda mosque and I had to go up and reassure this member that no, there's no evidence whatsoever that there are terrorists in that mosque and you know, there was that kind of thing uh, but again, we had some really, really smart members like Pete King and, and uh, the former chairman and Mike McCall, the current chairman um, who had been head of the JTTF or AJTTF in Texas who really were smart people. He, he was a career prosecutor, McCall. And, uh, uh, but yeah, there were a lot of members. It was hard to get their attention, hard to get them to briefings. And, you know, we just did our best to try to keep them as well informed as possible. But, you know, you can only do so much with right. somebody who's not very interested. And oddly enough, it was created because of 9-11, but the Homeland Security Committee, I think, for the leadership of both parties was kind of, for a while, considered a bit of a backwater, you know, as a committee assignment. Uh, you know, so, uh, but uh, we did our best with what we had, and we did we did a series of, of at times controversial hearings on radicalization, and I led several of those hearings, such as the Americans who had joined Al Shabaab in Somalia. There was like five or six dozen Americans, mostly from the Twin Cities, who had joined Al Shabaab, and then later ISIS in Syria. Uh, we did hearings on the threat to the military inside the homeland from terrorist groups. That was a serious thing, particularly in the soft community where the adversary has tried to identify people by name right. who are in special mission units and so forth, um, where they live, their families, and things like that. So that was something we wanted to try to help with.
Well, you'd say after Nadal Hassan shoots up Fort Hood, that, that certainly opened people's eyes to that. Carlos Bledsoe yeah. kill, you know, opening fire on a recruiting station in Little Rock, which was called a drive-by shooting, even though he had been to Yemen, mm. had been jailed in Yemen, had been interviewed by the FBI in Yemen. They had a case on him, you know. So we were looking at a lot of cases, and the Obama administration kind of downplaying, you know, things like the Bledsoe case, which the U.S. Attorney's Office did not prosecute. When has they ever turned down a terrorism case? Right. You know? um, they were very much like, there's not a problem here. There's not a radicalization problem here. And, you know, when you look back on ISIS's ability to inspire and get people to do things, I mean, they've, I don't know what, what the number is now, but it's like, I think, well over 150 people, maybe more than that, probably a lot more than that, actually. Uh, what was the most impactful moment during that time period dealing with the Boston Marathon bombing? Was that kind of essentially like, the, if you look back 15 years from now, will that be like kind of the centerpiece of your time working on that committee? You know, that was, that was a big thing, and it was sort of like, this is why I am here. Yeah. I had one foot out the door to ABC at that point. <laughs> So I kind of had to like take a pause in, in my negotiations with ABC. Um, and that was because Obama had won re-election by basically campaigning on, you know, I killed, one of the things he campaigned on was I killed bin Laden, I killed Alaki, we're safer. And, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of jobs for people who were counterterrorism uh, experts or analysts or investigators in journalism or anywhere else. And, you know, the day of that attack in Boston, the LA Times had done a huge story about the fact that people like me who had done terrorism work or counterterrorism were changing professions because there weren't grants anymore, there weren't jobs, because yeah, there wasn't a threat. Over. Right, yeah. it was all done and over with. We won. And that was a wake-up call. Yeah. And for a couple of weeks it was very intense, particularly as you know, McCall sort of came to prominence because CNN and others reported <laughs> that there had been arrests two days after the bombings and there hadn't been. And he came out because he had a staffer who was well-sourced and said no arrests and uh, helped to kill that story uh, you know so fortunately had I been wrong I probably would have lost my job on the committee and not been hired by ABC right so um, but the threat suddenly people realized there was still a threat and then with the rise of ISIS later that year I mean their ability to get people in the West to radicalize and, and do things either here or go to Syria was extraordinary. We'd never seen anything like that ever. There was nothing to compare it to. I, what's really interesting in the last five years or so since you, you left the committee is that terrorism stories haven't been really on the front page of the newspapers all that much anymore. I mean, granted, there's other things. There's the last year and a half of the Trump administration. There's certainly... Uh, stories that have supplanted terrorism. But there's also, I think, a mentality among many in this country that the war uh, is wound down or that very few, I mean, it's like one half of 1% of Americans are actually involved directly right. Right. in fighting these wars overseas. But I would say that's more recent. It's not the whole five well, years yeah, that more I've recent. The last, out of the committee. Because, yeah, I mean, in fact, ago. the volume turned up within a year of my being out of the committee. I mean, I, I went to ABC, and one of the first stories we did was that it was estimated that there would be at least um, 100 cases of interest that the FBI would have to monitor, you know, sort of looking forward in their uh, estimate, and a dozen arrests a year. And then, of course, that got completely blown up, in effect, by the rise of ISIS, right. where you're, you're talking, I don't know, I think they've said, like, you know, a 1,000 cases 
now open cases they you know there are periods where they're arresting dozens every year of isis supporters so uh, we had the hostage cases the beheadings of american hostages and, and british hostages and japanese hostages by isis so there was a very intense period it has interestingly enough perhaps it's because of the collapse of the caliphate in syria and iraq um you know we haven't had an attack knock on wood here in the homeland since halloween the bike path attack in new york uh so again this is sort of where we get lulled and we forget that the enemy the adversary is not on the you know one year plan when they do strategic thinking and prepare attacks they're on the, the hundred year plan right or thousand year plan arguably so it's just been kind of quiet lately and people are happy to you know be lost in the world of robert Mueller and russian trolls and bots and well, before we get there, because we're going to get there, but before we get there, I, I think that it's hard to argue that the destruction of the caliphate is bad for the world. Obviously, it's great that ISIS you know, got their ass handed to them. But for the average everyday American, it's arguably more dangerous now that there's been a bit of a diaspora of oh, yes. ISIS sympathizers moving. And in places that we as Americans don't pay a hell of a lot of attention to, I'm thinking Africa. I'm thinking East Asia, not China, but talking about like the Philippines. Brother, you don't have to go that far. Yeah. Just Europe. I mean, well, Europe. Yeah. Look, London had four attacks last year after 12 years of no terror attacks in London. Okay, and some of them were quite deadly. Obviously, the Ariana Grande, you know, concert mm -hmm. uh, was was terrible. Um, I, you know, earlier this year met with a lot of people in British intelligence. Who were saying to me, I was like, so things are cool now that the caliphate is gone, right? And they said, no, we're actually at the highest operational tempo in counterterrorism that we've ever been at in terms of threat. And it isn't even from the travelers to Syria, although that is a factor of Brits who've gone to Syria. But, uh, you know, they're saying we anticipate more. We're doing everything we can to stop it, but we anticipate more attacks. Uh, that diaspora, that ISIS diaspora is now spreading through back out through Europe. There are efforts, including by our own Joint Special Operations Command, to track the so-called, you know, squirters is a term that's used, leaving the former caliphate, perhaps returning back home to Europe and places where it could pose, they could pose threats to all of us. Um, I talked to a senior counterterrorism official just a couple of days ago who said, you know, we kind of joke around the office, like, you know, have we finally countered terrorism? Because there hasn't been an attack since October, and yet, they're talking to their European counterparts. They're seeing what's happening in Syria. And he said, we are very, very concerned about those people going back and, and attacking American interests or our European allies or tourism centers or whatever. So they're still very much on edge. And that isn't just the big military industrial complex. I mean, it's reality. Right. Just look what happened in Brussels, Paris twice. I mean, these guys are not done with us. Well, and there are places in the world where there's still full-fledged active war zones. You wrote an article recently about operations in Niger where it, 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 it reminds me a bit, and, I, and both of us were old enough to remember this, in 93 when the Somalia story broke, the Black Hawk Down story, the vast majority of Americans said, A, where is Somalia? And B, I didn't know we were fighting in Somalia. It just wasn't something that a lot of people had been paying attention to. You saw that a lot here also. You know, people confusing it with Nigeria, people not knowing how to, sadly, not knowing how to pronounce Niger, and that became very awkward for a lot of people. <laughs> right. And then not realizing that we actually had a 
relatively major military contingent there. Both conventional and yeah. uh, black ops as well. Yes. And much in the same way with Somalia, a tragedy, a disaster is what kind of opened Americans' eyes to the fact that this was going on. And, you know, your recent story has shown how much of an absolute, I'm, I want to use the word cluster with another word at the end of it, but I'm not going to because it's, it's not my right to, to use that language. But this is, a, this is a really big screw up. And I think what people don't quite understand is AFRICOM uh, is becoming a major theater of operations. And it's not getting a lot of coverage. I mean, your article from, I guess, a couple months ago is one of the most prominent articles written about kind of this, this theater of operations and the counterterrorism happening there. But there's not a hell of a lot else out there. And it's becoming arguably one of the most important places to be fighting against right. this kind of fundamentalism. Well, again, it's look, it's the thing that's always the case with special operations is they don't generally like journalists around. And when they do allow journalists around uh, special operators, you know, it's it's like the natural the Nat Geo crew that did uh, that great miniseries. If you haven't seen a chain of command, mm -hmm. uh, they by happenstance were with ODA thirty two twelve and Walam Niger, Niger uh, which was the team that got ambushed on October fourth, and four special operations soldiers were killed in action, and it resulted in a seven month investigation led by the chief of staff of U.S. Africa Command which was, you know, the, some folks said the optics, some Pentagon officials told me the optics of that were terrible, having the chief of staff of AFRICOM investigating an incident in AFRICOM. Um, but, you know, even that Nat Geo crew, like, had sort of access to the guys in garrison, like, you know, the David Johnson cutting somebody's hair, people, you know, kicking a soccer ball around, but not on any actual operational activity, you know. So... Part of that is to protect classified operations, but I think you know sometimes also, as I have found, it often is to keep uh, the elevation of activities out of the public eye and even out of the eyes of, of congressional oversight. You know, we've learned, I think, in the New York Times that there have been quite a few firefights even since October uh, that were unreported. You know, didn't even make it out. A lot of the stuff gets sort of leaked out because of local tweets, but we're talking in the middle of damn near nowhere where some of these firefights happen and there's nobody tweeting anything. You know, there's no cell phones out there right. and, um, or very little coverage. And so, uh, but yeah, you have, I think it's fair to say that it may be more dangerous to be a soldier or even a journalist with soldiers in, in Niger where if you get into trouble, medevac is not, you know, 20 minutes away. You know, maybe hours away before a medevac helicopter right. lands to take somebody to get aid if something happens. I mean, you really are in a, an area where we're operating, but there's not a lot of resources or haven't been. Um, I think there was a story the other day about a gunfight, I want to say in Somalia, where medevac came in pretty quickly. And that was sort of like touted as, see, look, we have more resources. We're able to get people to, to you know, medical aid a lot faster. But that's also an escalation. And, you know, you got members of Congress who were saying rather incredulously that they weren't even aware we were in Niger doing combat operations. I'm like thinking to myself, I have a vial of Saharan sand on my credenza with two shell casings in it that I've had for years <laughs> from a gunfight in Niger. 
how do they not know that we have people fighting in Niger or Be conducting because they're not going to their classified briefings? That's, that's, that's <laughs> probably the like. Honestly, yeah. that probably no, is why. Absolutely. I mean, and or not paying attention, or it's just low into the scale of things they think they have to pay attention to, and that's a problem. Is lack of interest of members. It used to frustrate the hell out of us as staffers. You know, when we'd have a classified hearing on an important subject, and you just have to call around and say, please. Please, whatever else is going on, I know you got to make donor calls. Please, the member needs to be there just for 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. And even then, you wouldn't always be successful. And I thought that was kind of a scandal, which nobody in the press ever reports on. But, uh, but yeah, that's Africa. Things are picking up there. Right. Uh, although now they're saying, well, maybe we're going to kind of reduce operations. So, which I don't believe for a second. We just mentioned the word scandal, so let's segue to the last thing I want to talk about. <laughs> Speaking of scandals. Um, the day we're recording this, I can say a couple days ago, uh, your most recent article was on someone that many of us may remember as the founder and CEO of Blackwater. Remember those guys who now does basically he's a Bond villain, Eric Prince. I mean, he's going around. I would know. not call him that. Well, right. You would, I, not, I would but. call Eric Prince one of the more fascinating figures of contemporary American history. And so was. Ernst Blofeld, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> so you just wrote a very fascinating article about Prince and how he his um, his background, his his contacts, his doings in the last couple of years is now under the close scrutiny of the Mueller investigation. Um, so let, let's let's kind of talk big picture and, and let's ask about you as an investigative journalist. You dealing with kind of the, this beat of the big story of the day, which, you know, if you haven't been under a rock for the last year and a half, is this investigation into Russian interference. How do you cover something like this investigation? Number one, they've been the best I've ever seen at preventing leaks from the investigation itself. No one has a clue of what's coming out of the Mueller investigation. And then there's 20 different factions outside that are trying to use anything that comes out or any information that comes out of social media or the White House or leakers on this side or anything else trying to twist it to their own craziness. Your your former employers, the New York Daily News, is a joy to read every day because they just get glee out of the trials and tribulations of the White House. Uh, and then there's this back and forth about what news can you trust. How do you find that I'm a successful, damn it, professional journalist that's going to talk about the truth in today's environment? That was a hell of a long question, but I think you get the idea. I'll try to give a more or maybe you brief don't. answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably to the chagrin of my colleagues, uh, I don't report a lot of scoops because investigative reporting is tough plotting work that requires an enormous amount of patience. Uh, when I look back, for example, and I think about some of my best sources, there were often people who I met and put no pressure on, and it was years in many cases, sometimes five years, before somebody actually started to, to help. Um, I'm sort of, uh, I sort of look at myself as being kind of like Columbo, for those who remember, Peter Falk. You know, just kind of uh, slow, plodding, deliberate. Um, and I'm looking for important stories related to this investigation uh, that I can somehow get at that aren't um, easily gettable. And that takes time. So 
you know, my recent stories have focused on this very important witness who's been given immunity, George Nader, who's this kind of bizarre Lebanese-American foreign policy operative who is sort of a guy who helps arrange a lot of meetings between a lot of important people in the Middle East and the United States and has been doing this for 30 years. Um, and he set up this meeting in the Seychelles between Eric Prince uh, and the Emiratis' friends from Russia, the sovereign wealth fund manager, Kirill Dmitriev, uh, a week before Trump was sworn in as president. And that's become a focus of uh, some level of investigation by Mueller's team, special counsel. Um, and then the, the, the story this week you know, was that Eric Prince had more reported Russian ties than he disclosed when he testified before the House Intelligence Committee last November. And I go into detail about you know, some of the new information, which the special counsel's office apparently has you know, asked people or interviewed people about. Um, but like I say, I sort of take a Columbo approach to this. And I don't really care much about the tweeting and the bloviating by anybody. Um, there is a lot that isn't known. And I know that, for example, congressional investigators may know more than a lot of us but they are not working with the special counsel's office. They are not even doing really deconfliction beyond just giving them a heads up on a hearing that they're going to do or a witness they want to interview. Um, the special counsel is sort of nose to the ground and doing their work. And, you know, what we know at this point is that there are basically like 11 people in the Trump orbit who had some level of contact with people who were sort of suspicious Russians or Russian agents. But a lot of that activity you could put fall under the category of dangling, you know, and a dangle is when a somebody who's working for an intelligence service approaches somebody with some information that they dangle in front of them and they see if they'll bite, if they'll take a meeting or a phone call. And that's what you have here is you have a lot of meetings and a lot of phone call or phone calls taken. What that's part of usually is a years long program. Just as I develop a source over mm -hmm. years, an intelligence service is going to develop an asset over years. And the first step is, are they amenable to even talking about something? Are they interested in something you have to offer? Now, whether the dangle went to actual collusion is the unknown question. But the big, there's sort of a big black box here that everybody loses sight of because we hear from witnesses. We've had them on camera at ABC and other networks. They come out of the grand jury. They go on camera with us. They tell us what, sometimes they tell us what they were asked, what they testified about. Um, but that's only one part of it. And you have a whole other part of it, which is we're talking foreign counterintelligence here. This started out as a counterintelligence investigation mm -hmm. before Robert Mueller became special counsel uh, by the FBI and justice. And there's sort of this, I call it the big black imaginary box over at Fortress Mueller, which is his Southwest DC um, secure office space. And that is the classified part of this investigation is you know what the Russians were up to, what they know about that. And the only time you really get a window on the classified, the top secret part, the special access programs, you know, highly secret a part of this investigation is when some of it gets declassified. For example, uh, I'm sure it was all declassified before they indicted the troll factory people, the 13 Russians, who were indicted and then sanctioned by the Treasury Department. And you know, that's where you start to get a peek at right. the other side of the investigation. So there is, there is an unknown amount of information that we're not privy to because it's secret.
And we don't right. know if we'll ever be privy to it, but no. we might. So it could be sources and methods based. It could be, you know, the Mueller investigation is getting stuff from NSA probably for, for signals intelligence. Or it could be direct <coughs> evidence of collusion. Right. And whether that becomes public or not, I don't know. But I just keep reminding my colleagues and friends and family members who ask, there's a lot we don't know because this is not, this is not like the, the Monica Lewinsky investigation, which was not classified. That's right. This is a classified, where people, if they disclose secrets, can be prosecuted under the Espionage Act or other laws. And as you say, this special counsel's office has been pretty good about not leaking. Let me ask you one final question about your colleagues and other people in the press and other people in the media who, are you worried that when the Mueller investigation is completed and they put the report out, whatever it says, right? Even whatever it says, whatever it comes to conclusion that the White House is completely clean and or they're a dirtiest sin or anything in between, that the waters now have been muddied so much by incorrect reporting and calls of fake news and 24-hour news cycle and reporting on crap that we know is not true, but uh, it doesn't really get fixed or no one sees the corrections or all this crap that's happened in the last couple of years. Um, have we dulled our senses to when we get the real scoop, to be able to recognize the real scoop when we see it. Well, that's a political tactic that's very old. And, you know, interestingly enough, years ago, I did a lot of reporting on political operatives. A lot of them were sort of Nixon campaign veterans like Arthur Finkelstein and uh, Lee Atwater, who were very good at that sort of um, exploiting sort of the flip side of the old saying from the great film, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend which is sort of like if you say it enough times, people will believe it. If you call somebody a liberal in a campaign ad over and over and over again, it'll just lock into the voter's mind, you know? Um, so that's a really good point you make. That's a really good point you make. I think, I, I don't know the answer to, to that, except I think you're on solid ground, that no matter how big it is, they're gonna be a significant portion of the population who won't believe it. Right whatever the conclusion is of Robert Mueller uh, in his report or in his prosecutions. Um, you know, there's an old saying in the intelligence game, which is you don't know what you don't know. And perhaps the most valuable lesson I learned by having a top secret clearance and having the sort of limited access to the information that our committee got and classified reporting, you know, sort of looking back on my prior career before that, as a journalist is I realized how little I actually knew as a national security reporter. And so when I went back into national security reporting, having the knowledge that, you know, on my, in my best day, my best moment, I or any of my colleagues on the national security reporting beat are only going to know a limited amount, percentage of what is knowable about what we're writing about. And if you sort of go into it recognizing that, it gives you a lot more humility and it actually helps you sort of write in a different way where you allow for the possibility that uh, you're more open-minded about the notion that there may be a lot more facts that are pertinent to the story, the subject you're writing about that day or the story you're breaking than what you're aware of in that moment. And that you have to really be open to the notion that there's a lot more, including perhaps exculpatory information that maybe makes somebody who looks really guilty not look so guilty or not be guilty. Um, you have to be open-minded to that. And it just, that, that experience working, you know, and having a peek behind the curtain taught me that there is 
you know, you don't know what you don't know. But I do know one thing. There's a lot that I don't know. And that helps to guide my reporting and hopefully, in a way, make it better and couch things and caveat things in a way that doesn't make me look like an idiot in hindsight if people look back <laughs> at my reporting. That's always helpful. Well, James Gordon Meek is a national security investigative reporter for ABC News. Thank you so much, man, for coming on and talking to us. We've been Thanks for having me. We've been trying to set this damn thing up for quite some time. Uh, we appreciate whoever needed to say yes finally saying yes, and we, we really enjoyed having you, man. Thank you for having me on. You're a great podcast, so thrilled to be here.